Go on, Keegan. All right. I want to ask you all to open up your Bibles with me this morning, if you would, to the book of 1 Peter. As we continue our verse-by-verse exposition of 1 Peter, we are in chapter 4 this morning. If you'll open up there, we uh, began last week looking at at, uh, the first six verses of chapter 4, and we saw in those verses that we are commanded there to arm ourselves for the purposes of God. And so in, as we continue our, our verse-by-verse uh, study of this passage, I just want to remind you a little bit of, of where we've been and, and, and where we are going in this text. The, uh, the command there in, uh, in verse number 1 where he says, arm yourselves, it's, that, it's a command which speaks of, of an army getting ready for war. And, uh, and that's how we're often, as Christians, that's how we're pictured. That's how we're instructed. We're pictured as, as God's army preparing for battle. Um, they're, they're, we fight battles every day, and we need to remember um, not only that there is a war going on, but that we are involved in it as God's children, that he has a purpose in, in calling us out to stand for him. And uh, Peter's purpose in writing this section of text is not so much to tell us how to fight as much as it is to encourage us to fight. He's giving us more the motivation of fighting that war than he is the, the tools for fighting the war. So he's, he's trying to encourage believers who are in the midst of suffering. They're suffering um, unjustly. They're suffering for their faith, and he wants to encourage them, reminding them that they are in a battle but God's purposes are being accomplished through that, even as Christ suffered to accomplish God's greater purpose. So we too are called to follow his example and serve the Lord and accomplish his purposes for us. And so, so this is what Peter is talking about as he tells us to arm ourselves for the purpose of enduring that God may be glorified in us as his purposes are accomplished. And so, let us stand together in honor of reading God's word. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. Because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning. We pray, Lord, that it would be an encouragement to us as it was to the original readers. 
We pray, Father, that you would give us perspective, that your spirit would take these truths and speak to our hearts that we might draw close to you this day. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. The first thing that you should notice in this text is following the command to arm yourselves is that it says that he who has suffered has ceased from sin. That the first purpose that we're to accomplish is we're pursuing that, of course, recognizing we're arming ourselves with the purpose, the same purpose of Christ, that is to honor God. And the first purpose there is that we might cease from sin, that we might defeat sin. Now, Christ ultimately defeated sin at the cross, but practically... We defeat sin in life by ceasing to pursue it. So what Christ has done ultimately, we join in his work in a practical sense. He has defeated the power of sin so that we are forgiven and we are no longer under condemnation. But we still battle sin. God's purpose is that we would no longer be slaves to sin, but that we would overcome and that we would reflect the glory of Christ and also accomplish his will. That is, that we would demonstrate God's glory. That's what it tells us in verse 2, that we would lift the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. As we seek to overcome sin, our purpose is to glorify God, to demonstrate his glory, to demonstrate the work that he has given us or the work that he has done for us in our pursuit of him. And as we move on this morning into verses 4 through 6, Peter continues to focus our attention in arming ourselves to attain God's purposes in us. And we have two additional purposes that we're going to be looking at this morning. Understanding that the suffering that Peter's referring to now, and it becomes more obvious in the text, is the suffering of living in a culture that, God, that hates God. The, you think about who Peter's writing to. He's, he's writing to people. He's not writing to believers in Jerusalem. He's writing to, to, to believers that are in, in, uh, in what they call Asia at the time, as a modern-day Turkey. He's writing to those believers who live in a, in a pagan culture. They, they don't know the God of Israel. And because they are different than the world around them, They are being mocked. They are being ridiculed. They are being harassed. And some of them, as as persecution is growing, some of them have actually been martyred for the faith. And Peter wants to remind them to stand fast, to be firm, to be encouraged, that God's purposes are being accomplished. Continue to encourage yourselves with the truth that God has not forsaken you, but he is continuing to work through you. He has called you for the purpose of defeating sin, so don't give in to the culture around you. Don't join them in sin, but cease from it. And in ceasing from it, pursue God's will that he might be glorified in you. And then he, and then he continues on in, in the next, in verse number, in verses 3 through 5, to remind us that we are to provide an example to the world around us. That one of the reasons why we cease from sin, one of the reasons why we suffer, one of the reasons why we endure is to be an example to others. To be an example to other believers, to encourage them, but also to be an example to the world around us that is lost. 
He says, we are called to be different. As Christians, we're not supposed to look like the rest of the world. We're not supposed to enjoy the desires of the flesh, to pursue those things which separate us from God, which are displeasing to God. Look at verse number three. He says, for the time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles. Having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. He says, that's, that's what your life was like before. Now, you're to be different. You're not to pursue those things. And I can just, I can just hear some people reading through this and thinking, well, I never did those things. How can it be sufficient? How can the time be sufficient for me to do those things if I've never done them? God didn't intend for this passage to encourage us to say, well, you know what? Everybody needs to live a life of rebellion for a little while before they come to faith in Christ. That's that's not the point. He says, whatever time you've spent apart from God is a sufficient amount of time to be condemned for your sins. That's what's sufficient. Actually, the word sufficient is a word that could be translated as to be content. That is, understand, be content with that time which you were away from God, understanding the condemnation that was brought on you. Be content understanding that that God has delivered you out of that and that you're not to pursue it. See, our lives ought to reflect the reality of regeneration. That is, we we ought to be different from the world around us. You know, I've met with several people over the years, many who have come to faith later in life, and and this would describe much of what their life was like beforehand. They they were involved in all of these these wild things, these these revelries and drinking parties and and things that are, are abominable before God. And none of them, none of them want to go back to that. None of them want to go back to where they were, but they live with a regret that they wasted so much of their life pursuing the things of the world rather than serving God. And yet, there are Christians, there are believers, or so-called believers, that will look at a passage like this and say, well, you know, I was brought up in the church and I never, and I, and I was converted at an early age and I never experienced these things and, and I really think that I'm missing out on something. Listen, if, if, if your heart is after the things of the world, then, then you have a heart problem before God. Because God's purpose in saving us isn't so that, so that we can pursue the things of the world, but so that we can pursue Him. We need, we need to not cling to those things that are in the world, but we need to cling to God. We need to, to cling to the regenerating power of the Spirit, which came into us, which gave us a knowledge of the truth, which helped us to understand that it was sufficient before, and, and the things that, that we did. Anything that you've done in your life that is against God's Word and God's will is sufficient enough to condemn you for eternity. That that is the reality of being born under the curse of sin. Being born into a world that does not know God and is opposed to God. 
and, and you're born into this world and our hearts are not right and, and God is gracious to us for a time, but the moment we become aware of what sin is and we choose it, we become guilty before a holy God. We become condemned. And we're not to pursue those things as Christians. Having been saved, we ought to desist from sinful living. That doesn't mean that we don't struggle with the draw of sin. I think there are times in life that, especially for those that have lived a life of sin before, there are certain aspects of that former life that still draw us They still get our attention. They still tempt us to a degree. But there's no enjoyment left there for us. There's no satisfaction there for us. Because we can only be satisfied in Christ. Christians, we might struggle with sin, but we ought not to long for it. We might struggle with sin, but we need to recognize that it was that very sin that put Christ on the cross. It was that very sin that he poured his blood out for, to cover. It was that sin that he died for. And we ought to abhor it because of that. If, you, if your desire is more for the pleasures of the world than for, the, than for pleasing the Lord, there's a heart issue. It's a heart issue that God is able to change. James 4.4 warns us, he says, You adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. 1 John 2.15 says, Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Those are some pretty strong warnings to us in Scripture. Those are very strong warnings to remind us that as followers of Christ, we cannot pursue the things of the world over the things of the Lord. Like I said, we may struggle, but our greatest desire ought to be that of pleasing our Heavenly Father and living for Him. God knows that we struggle. God knows our heart. And his purpose in reminding us of this and and what Peter is telling us here is a matter of examining our desires. Has your heart been changed by the love of Christ? Or are you still of the world? Is our example one that demonstrates the reality of regeneration or is it one that blends in with a God-hating culture? We must be devoted to the things of God. We must be devoted to His will and His word and His way so that as examples to the world around us, we might demonstrate the reality of regeneration, understanding that when we do so, there is a response from our culture. And this is what we see in verse number four. In all this, that is in all of these things in which we're not participating in anymore, it says they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation and they malign you. We're given two responses of the culture towards the Christian who no longer participates in the things that the culture 
deems to be worthy of pursuit. And while we are looking at a culture historically that was pagan and was involved in all kinds of immoral acts and different things, when we look at the world in which we live and the culture in which we exist today, it's really not all that different. Our culture at large has turned their back on God. They have said that we ought to pursue whatever feels right, whatever feels good, whatever makes you happy, whatever you enjoy you should do, whatever desire fills your heart you should pursue it, and no one should tell you that you shouldn't. And if anyone tells you that the things that you desire are wrong, then they're the ones who are mocked and ridiculed and ostracized by our culture. That's the reality in where we live. So this is, this is very practical when we think about the culture in which we live today and how we're to respond to it and to understand that, you know what, because of what Christ has done, we, we can be different and we should be different. And when we are, we ought to expect the culture to respond to that. And their first response is one of surprise. They don't, they don't understand why you would not want to do the things that they take so much pleasure in. They don't understand why you don't want to go to that party and get drunk. They don't, want to, they don't understand why you don't want to go and, and get high. They don't understand why you don't want to just be involved with as many different people as you can to have the greatest experiences as you can sexually. They don't understand if you don't want to do those things because those are the things that they pursue. Those are the things that they think that life is all about. Those are the things that they want to, to fill their life with because Guess what? They're seeking for some kind of fulfillment. They're seeking for some kind of joy. They're seeking for some kind of satisfaction. And they think those things that make them feel good for a few minutes are the answer. But it's never enough. And it will never be enough. None of those things will ultimately satisfy them. Because we're all created to have a relationship with God. A relationship with our Creator. And until we come to the place where we recognize that the things of this world won't satisfy us and we pursue God according to his word, then we will never find satisfaction in this life. And the, but the world doesn't get that, nor can they. They can't understand it. It's, it's a spiritual reality. They're spiritually dead. They're not going to understand it. So they're surprised that you're not, you're not pursuing the things they're pursuing because they think those things are the keys to happiness. So they're surprised. They think, they think it's strange. Have you ever been accused of not being normal because your pursuits are different than the world around you? Has anybody ever, ever you know, poked fun at you because you didn't want to do the things that they thought were worth doing? Yeah. I mean, we, we ought to experience that. This, this, is, this is part of what comes from living in a world that is opposed to God and seeking to stand and live by conviction. Is you're, going to, you're going to be ridiculed by the world. They're going to mark you off. We should expect it. We should be prepared for it. And we should endure it. Because it doesn't usually stop with them being surprised it often goes on into that mocking, that, that ridicule. Peter says, not only are they surprised that we don't run with them, but they malign you. 
the most literal translation from the Greek is they blaspheme you. Now, we don't typically think of blaspheming people, but the word in its most literal sense just means to speak ill of. They don't, they don't like it when you don't do the things that make them feel good because somehow they think you're judging them all of a sudden. And so instead of trying to understand where you're coming from, they're simply going to try and make you look bad. They're going to try and make themselves feel better by putting themselves down, putting, putting us down. As Christians, make themselves feel better by putting us down. But we are called to endure, remembering that we are being an example. And although we should expect that response from the culture, we must remember Christ's sacrifice that was made for us in order that we might endure. Could we not endure a few moments of discomfort? in recognition of the discomfort the Lord suffered for our sake? Can we not endure for a little while when Christ endured so long in order to redeem us? There will be times of confrontation and opposition as people ridicule and mock us for our convictions, but we must persevere. As I was studying this yesterday, as a matter of fact, and I was reminded of an uh, author from the 17th century by the name of John Bunyan. He's not Paul's brother, if you all don't know who John Bunyan is. John Bunyan was a preacher in the uh, 17th century who wrote a book by the name of Pilgrim's Progress. If you have not read that book, I would highly encourage you to get a copy and read it. It is the most widely circulated book in the world next to the Bible. So if you haven't read it, you're missing out on something. But Bunyan wrote Pilgrim's Progress from prison. Think about, you know, Apostle Paul here, right? Paul did a lot of his writing from prison, right? And uh, Bunyan, in seeking to follow Christ and, and, uh, and honor him, was imprisoned. And he was imprisoned, of all things, he was imprisoned for open-air preaching. He was converted to Christ. He, he felt compelled to preach the word. He, he couldn't find a church that, that wanted to... Uh, let him practice preaching, and so he just would go out in the fields, and he would just, he would just preach to whoever would listen. And, uh, well, they said, you can't do that, and they put him in prison. And uh, they said, you know what, if you agree not to preach, we'll let you out. All you have to do is just stop preaching. We'll let you out. Bunyan's response was, if I was out of prison today, I would preach the gospel again tomorrow by the help of God because of his conviction to preach the gospel, because of his desire to serve the Lord with his life. Even though prior to his conversion, Bunyan had a reputation of being kind of a ruffian. And uh, there were those who couldn't even believe that he was in prison for preaching because they knew him as a youth. And uh, he had quite the reputation, but Bunyan 
elected to stay in prison rather than deny his calling to preach the gospel. And Bunyan would be in prison, and he would actually, people would gather around outside of his jail cell window in order to hear him preach. I don't know how they knew he was preaching. Somebody was probably just passing by. They heard him because he, he couldn't see them. They couldn't see him. But he would, just, he would just preach the word from his jail cell, and people would gather around to listen to him preach, persevering, because he wouldn't go along with the culture. He wouldn't do what they wanted him to do, but he wanted to serve Christ. When we're faithful to Christ, we will be confronted with a world that is hostile to our convictions. But we must be ready to endure, prepare ourselves to persevere. Through endurance, we show the reality of regeneration in spite of the response from our culture because we recognize that there is a time of judgment coming. There is an accountability that will be given. And Peter points us in that same direction. He says, listen, be encouraged. Understand those people that are mocking you, those people that are making fun of you, they're they're going to answer for it. Verse number 5 says, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Now, I think sometimes it seems a little bit harsh. And I think part of this is just our just a nuance to our own culture. Of course, there's always a part of us, I think, that, that rejoices in a, this kind of reality, too, is to... Uh, Rejoice, and you think about those who are doing wrong to you, and you want something to be done to them, and just knowing that it's coming. They're going to get theirs, right? And we think, well, we ought not to think like that as Christians. But at the same time, God kind of tells us they're going to get theirs. He says, if they don't repent, if they don't turn, listen, you're an example that they might know the truth, that they might see the effects of it in your life, and if they still refuse to hear me, just understand, they're going to give an account. They're going to answer for it. They are going to get theirs. Those that oppose us and persecute us, they are going to have to answer. Not, they don't have to answer to us, but they will have to answer to God. This is one of the reasons why Christians, we don't need to seek retaliation for those that oppose us. We can trust God to take care of them. He will either lead them to repentance or they will suffer eternal condemnation. 2 Corinthians 5.10 reminds us we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. The message that Paul speaks of in 2 Corinthians here is not so much the judgment of unbelievers but really that of believers. Because I believe that Peter's point in pointing us to judgment is actually twofold. First of all, it's to remind us that there is an accountability for all those who oppose and oppress and persecute and mock. They're going to answer. But we as believers, we also have to give an accounting, which is why I think Peter mentions in verse 5 when he says, he says, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. You see, God's judgment is universal. Everyone gives an account to God at some point. And so while, strictly speaking, Peter's talking about the judgment that the unbelievers are going to give, he says, but don't forget, he's the judge of the living and the dead. You're going to give an account too. So remember, as you're called to be an example, that you are going to give an account 
for how well you were an example, for faithfulness or lack thereof. Not to determine your eternal state, but rather to determine your eternal reward. We're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, if any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. You see, we can, we can take courage that those who would oppress and persecute us, you know what, they're going to give an account to God, but we also need to remember we are too. So we need to be faithful. We need to continue to stand firm on our convictions. We need to remember to be faithful because judgment comes on all of us. And we would do well to consider that future reality, making sure that we are in the faith and that we are being faithful. The Lord knows our every act. He knows our every thought. So we are encouraged to be a good example, to leave a proper witness. I think one of the great things about being a Christian, about following Christ, is we know that there's a judgment coming, but we don't have to fear it. We can actually rejoice in that time when we, when we get to see our Lord face to face. And if we long to hear those words, well done and good faithful servant, and we order our lives in order to to pursue God and His purposes and His righteousness. If we are honest with the Lord about our sins and we confess them before Him, we know He's faithful to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And We can look forward to that day when we come to the judgment seat of Christ and, and we can just lay down and worship God knowing that we have given Him our all. Judgment's a scary thing if you don't know the Lord. But if you know him, it doesn't have to be. We can look forward to it with joy and encouragement. Our example, as we cease from sin and we don't pursue the things of the world, it causes not only surprise, but it serves a purpose of planting seeds for the gospel. People will, people will be surprised. And they may, and, it, and some will, oppose us and ridicule us and mock us. But even some of those will ultimately be re led to repentance. Because our testimony is a means of opening the door for the truth of the gospel. We need to be an example so that we can plant those seeds. So that people might know Christ, his forgiveness. And they might join us in eternal service to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Which is actually what Peter points us to in this final verse of this section, is the purpose of pursuing eternal service. Look at it with me, if you will. It says, For the gospel has for this purpose been preached, even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the Spirit according to the will of God. It's interesting to me that Peter seems to like to talk about preaching to people who are dead. We saw it in the last chapter, in, in, verse, in chapter number 3, in uh, 
He says there in verse 19, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. And we talked about how that was the spirit of Christ preaching through Noah and, and Noah proclaiming the gospel, the way of salvation. And how many people believed him? Seven other people, right? Because there was only eight people on the ark. God says, I give you one way to be saved. This is it. Get on the ark or, or die. And seven people got on the ark, Noah's family, and, uh, and they were saved. And so they rejected the gospel. They were preached to in the past, and they, were, they rejected the gospel. Now, in, in our text, Peter's pointing to the reality that the gospel has been proclaimed to people who have accepted the gospel. And so he's, he's causing us to look back at the faithfulness of those who have gone before, recognizing that there is a present reality and a future reality for us to consider. The present reality of those that have believed in the gospel, that even though they may have been martyred for the faith, even though they may have given their all for the faith, that they are at this very time, at this very moment, they are living in the presence of God, serving Him, glorifying Him, worshiping Him, serving Him for all eternity. The gospel has been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the Spirit according to the will of God. What does that mean, they were judged in the flesh as men? It means they experienced the same ridicule, the same, the same oppression, the same persecution that, that you may experience. They experienced that same suffering. They were judged by men for their faithfulness. Some judged them faithful and followed. Some judged them faithful and persecuted. But it wasn't the judgment of men that really mattered. It was the judgment of God. And because God is a faithful judge and because God redeems those who come to Christ in faith and repentance... There is an eternal reality, an eternal service which we can enjoy as believers so that we will never be separated from the love of God. Salvation is the reality of a life that begins when we believe, but it continues through all eternity. It never ceases. We get to the end of this life and we just make a transition. We transition from serving Christ in this life to serving Christ in the next life. We're born in bondage to sin. We're spiritually dead. That's the condition of the world that opposes us. We're born in this, in this reality in which we don't know God and we don't understand God. And yet, somehow, mysteriously, God, through the power of His Spirit, opens our hearts and our minds to the truth of who we are, of our need for Him, and leads us to a place of repentance in order that we might know the truth and that we might be redeemed from our sinfulness. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 3, it says, Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of the flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. He says, listen, I understand the struggle that you're in. This was your condition. This is the condition of those who now are maligning you, who are blaspheming you. These are those who oppose you. You used to be like them. But because of the power of the gospel, you're no longer there. Be a good example. Understand that there's, a, there's an eternity awaiting for you when you come to Christ for faith and repentance. We were, we were dead in our spirit, but Christ has made us alive together through him. 
through the power of the gospel. Repentance means that we have a desire to change and honor God. Faith recognizes that Jesus is the only and all-sufficient substitute that satisfied God's wrath against us and imparts to us His righteousness. So in receiving salvation, we are given new hope, new desires, new purpose, and we receive eternal life. As I already said, it's a reality that begins at the moment of salvation. R.C. Sproul said that the Christian life begins at conversion. It does not end where it begins. It grows. It moves from faith to faith, from grace to grace, from life to life. This movement of growth is prodded by continual seeking after God. You see, it's not enough just for us to make a profession of faith. We need to continue to pursue Christ. We need to continue to pursue God's will. We need to continue to experience victory over sin. We need to continue to put ourselves in God's hands and to trust in Him and to follow after Him so that He might be glorified through us. When we come to faith in Christ, we're, we're reborn spiritually. We come, in, we come in to the spiritual relationships as, as babes in the faith. And we begin to grow and mature in our understanding of God's Word and its applications to our life. And because we grow in our understanding and knowledge, we also grow in the practical aspects, the outworking of our faith. We grow in practical righteousness. We grow in holiness. We become less like the world around us and more like the Lord whom we're seeking. And then when we get to the end of this life, we go on to serve Him, even as those... Whom, Christ refer, or whom Peter refers to here in verse number 6. That though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the Spirit according to the will of God. Life in Christ never ends. That is why it's eternal life. It's not temporary life, it's eternal life. In Hebrews chapter 11, we come across what is often referred to as the hall of faith. And the writer points out there, many people whom we read about in the Old Testament who were examples of faith. Some are better examples than others, but all of them listed are those who trusted God ultimately. And then as we get to chapter 12 in Hebrews, in verse 1, it says this, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. See, the writer of Hebrews is encouraging the readers to recognize the faithfulness of those who have gone before, to recognize the example that they've left for us to follow. They've, and then Peter draws on that same understanding, that same knowledge. He says, Remember those who have gone before you. Remember those that have believed the gospel. And though they may be dead now, they are enjoying the benefits of eternal life in the presence of God. And we have that to look forward to if we endure, if we believe, if we come to Christ. Remember 
those who have gone before. Remember their example. Remember they have attained to the promise of eternal life. Therefore, prepare yourselves, whatever may come, that you may also persevere and fulfill God's will for your life. Defeating sin, living for God's glory, providing an example, and pursuing eternal service. Difficult times are going to come. We will face opposition. We will face ridicule at times. We will face other examples and hardships in life. But remember, Christ has saved you to be his representative, to be an example to those around you. So don't be discouraged by difficult people. Don't be overcome by seemingly desperate circumstances. But keep your eyes on Christ. Keep your focus on him, on his truth, on his word, on his promises, that you might be encouraged to persevere in the faith, remembering what he endured for your sake, that you might endure for his Let's pray together. Father, I just thank you for your word. I thank you, Lord, for the encouragement that it brings to us as we seek to know and understand how we engage a seemingly hostile word, world. Lord, the world continually rejects your truth, and seeks its own desire. And Lord, it can be difficult for us when we're around people who are talking about things that they've done and, and are doing. And Lord, sometimes we just we want to be a part of the group. We want to be a part of what's going on, even though, Lord, we know that sometimes those things aren't right. Give us the strength to stand on conviction, to stand for the faith, to honor you in our stand to trust you, to work in every circumstance, to glorify your name and to strengthen us as your servants. And Lord, let us not be tempted to forsake the way and to bring your discipline upon us, but let us be diligent in honoring you in all that we do. Strengthen us to be witnesses in the world. Strengthen us to endure the difficult people and the difficult circumstances, knowing that your will is being accomplished and that your name will be glorified. And it's in that name the most holy and precious name of Christ Jesus our Lord that we pray these things this morning.